we're approaching that final plague. We're also approaching the final weeks of our study of Exodus for the summer months. We'll get right to that plague and then cut it off and leave you suspended till next summer. We're really good at doing that kind of thing. It really has been a great time studying this book together and seeing the, the attributes of God and the nature of God, but we're, we're now approaching that 10th plague and we'll spend a few more weeks together studying this and then we'll go back into our study of Second Thessalonians and finish that out um, throughout the fall months and begin a new study. Since its beginning, Christians have been discussing the degree to which God involves himself in human decisions. How free is a person's will? Did God create the world? Did he wind it up and then step away and just let it go on its own and wherever it would go, that's where it would end up? Does God force people to make decisions that they don't want to make? If God is involved in human decisions, then why why are humans making so many terrible decisions? Can God really know what we will do before anyone actually does anything? And if our decisions are already determined by God, are we actually free? This week I found myself reading through a significant evaluation of these kinds of issues in John Feinberg's theological treatise called No One Like Him. It's a good good evaluation of this. In it, he outlines and he defines and he interacts with philosophical and theological descriptions that have to do with God's involvement with the concept of human free will and human responsibility. He describes the two overarching categories of the debate. One category is called indeterminism and the other determinism. Indeterminism essentially means that There is no one possible future that is guaranteed. There's a lot of different possibilities. No one possible future is guaranteed. Determinism is the opposite of that, and it says only one real outcome is possible. Now, when you get into indeterminism, it's applied to human decision-making, not just how the world works, but in regard to human decisions, one of the chief viewpoints in it is called libertarian freedom. And libertarian freedom is the idea that a person's actions are not determined before they are made, and he or she is always free to make a different choice than they did. And God, when applying this to theology, it means that God then does not involve himself in human decision-making explicitly so as to cause a person to decide or choose only one direction. That's libertarianism as far as we are talking about human decision-making. Now in determinism, and you remember that means just one real possible outcome is applied to human decisions, when determinism is looked at, There's a variety of viewpoints that uh, arise. There's what philosophers call hard determinism, and that's where there is no possibility at all of any human freedom. It leads to what we call fatalism. There's what the philosophers also call soft determinism, and they would say while the outcomes are determined, there are some actions that humans take that are freely made, and that's called compatibilism. 
Now, I am oversimplifying a very complex discussion. But compatibilism is this idea that there's a form of soft determinism that says genuine free human actions are compatible with causal conditions that decisively incline the will without constraining it. Did you get that? See how philosophers think and talk? They leave you really clear, don't they? If it's raining outside and you get to work when it's raining and the rain causes you to get your umbrella out and pop it up to go into work, there was a cause that made you get the umbrella, but you freely of your own will got the umbrella out. It's compatible. Your free actions worked with a cause that directed you to make one outcome. Now, there are some of you who are like, there's no way I'm using an umbrella. I'm not that soft. It's a short walk in, and I'm just going to get rained on. And you say, there's nobody, no cause going to make me use an umbrella. Well, you do that of your own free choice as well. And when you get into work and you find out that your boss or your supervisor standing right there and was going to talk to you about a job raise and now said, I don't think so. He's not wise enough to use an umbrella. <laughs> well, that's how that works out. I know that some of that's hard to understand, especially when you read the philosophers. And I, I would really encourage you to maybe get something like Feinberg's thick book on the nature of God and, and wrestle through some of that. Or you could get John Frame's book on, on God as well and the nature of God. And he goes into great detail on that. And I think you're going to find it fairly helpful. And this debate does get into the philosophical weeds and it is very intriguing and it actually has very significant implications for us on whether or not we're going to trust God, what is the role of the Holy Spirit, how free are humans and how should we think about that freedom and what does that make us do in appealing to human freedom. It's a very significant topic and if you think that it's just kind of easily dismissed in one way or another, you, you probably have not thought through this very well. You've not thought through it clearly and extensively. It's very significant. Now, I'm not going to spend much time, thankfully, delving into all of the philosophical minutia behind some of these categories and ideas. They exist. They're worth thinking through. But what I do want you to see is that Exodus chapter 11 is actually diving into this very issue of God's involvement in human decisions. Exodus 11 actually predicts all kinds of human decisions before any of them are ever made. God's going to act on the Egyptians so that they will give their gold and silver to people they thought as less than human. How does this work? Well, as we've stated a few times, the book of Exodus is all about who God is and how we relate to that God. Those two ideas make up the two sections of the book, who God is, chapters 1 to 18, and how we relate to God, that's chapters 19 through 40. Now in describing who God is, we find first in the first 12 chapters, when Israel is in Exodus and at their expulsion from, from Egypt, they're in Egypt and they're about to embark on the exodus 
we learn about God, who he is. He is a redeemer. He is a redeemer of his people. Now, I think that is very, very important for us to keep in mind as we enter into Exodus 11 and we start thinking about how God works through human decisions. The activity of God described here is not merely some esoteric philosophical debate with fancy terms that we don't care about. This is God's activity the intricacies, the intimacy of God's involvement in how he actually redeems his people. That has to do with your salvation and my salvation. How deeply involved is God in all of the trappings, in all of the people, the circumstances, the weather, all of it, so that you come to know him or that you face a just judge. Exodus 11 is the prologue to the 10th plague and it puts us face to face with asking and answering these kinds of questions of God's involvement in our decisions. I mean, we remember the plagues on Egypt are all an answer to Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh and why should I obey him? And throughout the plagues, God has shown him who he is. He's supreme and sovereign. He's the creator, so he should be obeyed. He's the provider. He's the sustainer. All of those attributes of God were put on display through the first nine plagues. Chapter 11 is no different. Here we begin the description of the tenth, the final plague that will expel Israel from enslavement to the pagan Egyptians and put them on a course to the land that God had actually promised to give them 400 plus years before. And so here we're going to see that God is the director of life. Now I almost titled this, being a Texan, I almost titled this, God is the decider. You know why. You remember George W. Bush when he was talking about why Rumsfeld should still be the Secretary of Defense. He said, I'm the decider and I'll decide. Well, George, God is the decider, right? God is, he is the director. He's, he's the director behind the plot. He's the director behind the scenes. He's directing everything so that it actually comes out exactly according to his divine purpose. And that purpose is good and right, glorious. And chapter 11 is a description that God gives to Moses of what will happen in that final plague before it ever is launched and all the activities that will take place and how people will respond and even the effects of their own responses, which is really amazing to think about. It's mind-blowing. Now we gather that this discussion actually between Moses and Pharaoh takes place just after the the ninth plague. You remember the ninth plague of the darkness. It was there for three days. We saw that at the end of chapter 10. And at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh is done with Moses and says, you need to get out and I will never see your face again. Now in chapter 11, verse 8, we see Moses actually leaving in hot anger. So likely this account is taking place right at the tail end before Moses leaves. 
because he's not going to see Pharaoh face to face and engage in this way with him again. But all of chapter 11 is really background information. It's background information before the plague and the death comes to the firstborn. It's all background information. Now some of it has been promised before, but it's now just kind of an introductory explanation before it launches. And it's really focused on what God will do. If you would just trace the activity of God through this chapter, you'll see the emphasis over and over. This is what God is going to do. This is not about Moses and how smart he is and how powerful he is. This is about God. God is at work here and God is at work through human decisions. Why is it listed here? I think the reason why God wants it here, he certainly did in the beginning because he wanted Israel who was watching all of this to know how intimate God is involved in all the details of their redemption. He wanted them to know what's going on in realms they cannot see so that they would know that this was definitely God at work. This is not just random circumstances. God is guiding this whole thing. And you should know that, Israel, because there's going to come occasions when your trust of this God is going to be questioned in your heart. There's going to be circumstances that come up and you're going to wonder, did we make the right decision? Well, just remember how involved God is. I think that's why this chapter is here for us. How involved is God in your life? How involved is he in the decisions that you make? And not just to what extent is he involved, how does he do it? Exodus 11 focuses on two categories of God's involvement. In directing life while redeeming his people. Two categories of God's intimate, his intricate involvement in directing life while redeeming his people. That's what I want us to focus on. And, and listen, this is just one chapter. This is not the only chapter in the Bible that says these things. And we, we could be here a very, very long time just walking through the host of passages in the scripture that unfold this very idea. But here we get a really explicit look into it. So the first category of God's involvement in directing life while he redeems his people is this. God directs responses. He directs responses. What we see in verses 1 to 3 is God's active, intimate, intricate involvement in specific, willful human responses to his people because of his activity in their decisions that brings about his own purpose before anyone's made a decision. We see God directing willful human responses that are both unfavorable and favorable. And that's what I want to look at in this first category. Look first at some of the unfavorable responses that God is involved in directing. Verse 1. Read it again. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh. I think that probably brought a little bit of joy to Moses' heart. Ah, 
finally we have reached that place. I mean, you remember in the beginning, he was kind of questioning, I did one of these and it didn't work. No, there's going to be one more plague that I will bring on Pharaoh and Egypt. Now notice, I will bring the plague. It will be on Pharaoh because he's been, he's been the one who's kept Israel enslaved even when some of the people in Egypt have wanted to let them go so God's going to do this on Pharaoh but also on Egypt because Egypt as a people have represented bondage to Israel so I'm going to bring this on Pharaoh and Egypt it's God coming after Pharaoh probably more directly than we have seen yet But keep in mind, it's not just Pharaoh as a person, but Pharaoh as he is viewed by the people as a God, right? Pharaoh was viewed as the highest of all the deities, the son of one of the deities, one of the, 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 like the incarnation, the representation of one of the greatest deities in, in all of Egypt, Pharaoh was the representative So when God attacks Pharaoh, he's attacking one of the gods that Egypt worships. But this final plague is going to bring about a response from Pharaoh that will not be one on which he'll eventually renege. And we need to see that. In verse 1 he says, when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. This will be it. You're leaving Egypt. That phrase, surely drive you out, it was promised back in chapter 6, verse 1. It was used there when it says, before the plagues begin, the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for under compulsion he will let them go and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. The same term drive you out was used to describe Moses being driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh drove Moses out. Now what is God going to do? He's going to cause Pharaoh to drive Israel out of the land. Interestingly, that same phrase, drive you out, is the very phrase that God says to Israel later in the book of Exodus that God is going to do to all the nations that inhabit the land of promise. He's going to drive them out, push them out. So when Pharaoh drives these people out completely, don't think for a moment that Pharaoh is now coming to his senses. Don't think for a moment that Pharaoh is now repentant or he's humbled, he's chastened, he's softened, he's gladly acknowledging God is a greater God than him. No, no, not of that, none of that. Pharaoh is still a recalcitrant, embittered, enraged, broken, but furious man. He's expelling Israel from Egypt because he loathes them. He hates them. He is not humbled before God. And God promises Pharaoh's unfavorable response. And that response leads to God's purpose. Where did God want Israel? Not in Egypt, in the land that he promised. So Pharaoh, acting out of rage in his own will, 
desiring what he desires for his own purposes is actually going to accomplish what God had designed and said would happen hundreds of years before this. Pharaoh doesn't want to repent. Someone's going to ask the question, well, maybe he wanted to and God just wouldn't let him repent. No, you need to see this. Pharaoh doesn't want to repent. You don't see him begging God, just let me in, just let me in, just let me change my mind here. That's not it at all. God is directing the unfavorable response through his enacting this plague and this plague is a means, it's a cause that God is using to actually take the heart of Pharaoh and let it act out what's already in it. And then it accomplishes God's promise. We would do well to think about that more carefully in our surroundings. How well we would do to keep in mind that when we see unfavorable outcomes and people who respond to us in harsh and angry and embittered ways when we've tried to be loving and kind and gracious or we've just tried to to point them even gently at times to the things of God and we get blowback and rejection and the silent treatment or whatever it might be. Don't for one minute think that God isn't involved in that. He's still involved. He's still working out his plan. The story is not finished. You don't know how it's going to end. And what if in God's wisdom, that harsh, bitter, hateful response he eventually uses to soften a person's heart and break them and burden them of their own need for Christ because they see how terrible they were. And you look at it and say, wow, look what God did through what I was complaining about. That would be just like God. Or maybe he lets that heart grow harder and harder and harder. Even though they hear again and they see again what you're doing in your life and how you're raising your family and how you're trying to honor the Lord and and they, they don't like anything about the decisions you're making and they just get harder towards you about those things. You think, why isn't God at work? He is. He is. And if there's no repentance one day, all of that will be replayed as testimony to the justice of God. But God is not only involved in the unfavorable responses. He's also involved in the favorable ones. Look at the favorable responses that are at the hand of God in verses two through three. Read what Moses is asked to do in verse two. Now speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Now we can assume that the Israelites were to start asking their neighbors right away before the plague hits. In light of all the other coming plagues, you're to ask your neighbors. I would like your silver and your gold, please. (laughs) You're going to ask that of people who hate you. They hate you. They would not eat with 
Israelites. They viewed the Israelites as less than human. The Israelites were only good enough to build temples to their gods and to themselves. The Israelites were not people you're going to spend Christmas with and give gifts to. But that's exactly what is predicted here. They're going to experience something like Christmas morning. And they're going to get all these these wonderful gifts of gold and silver. Not the cheap stuff. Gold and silver. And they're they're to go and say, "I, I would like you to give me that, please. I would like you to give me the most expensive jewelry in your collection, if you wouldn't mind. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a tack that we take with our neighbors this afternoon. This is not God saying to you, try it out, see how it works. And how would you have confidence at all that this would work if you're an Israelite and you're enslaved? Well, you have seen nine prior plagues and so have the Egyptians. So you should have some confidence that God is up to something here. But notice also verse three. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. What? The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. What what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says, friends. God gave the Israelite people favor. It's a word that you could translate translate as grace. He caused the Egyptians to look with grace favor, undeserved, unearned kinds of favor toward the Israelites in the sight of the Egyptians. What does that mean? When they looked at the Israelites, they had a change of disposition. In their hearts, they wanted to give them these things. Do you see that? In their sight, meaning in their internal person, so, so when they're giving articles of gold and silver, they're not saying, you can have it, but I, I don't want you to have it. I'm being forced to do this against my will. No, they view the Israelites as people who should have this. God has so changed their hearts in this moment that they want that. And how did he change their hearts? Well, I think the Egyptians had become more supple in the hands of God under the plagues than Pharaoh had. I think what you're seeing here is they recognize, hey, listen, they're not dumb. They didn't just all of a sudden lose their brains. They've been through nine plagues. Some of their family members are dead because of it. Their cattle is dead. They have nothing to eat. They have no means of survival. You want my gold? What am I going to do with it? Will it get you out of here? Take it, please. Take it. So it's not that God had a rope around their throat and he's just pulling them against their will. Give them your gold. That's not it. No, they're willingly. You go ask them and they're just going to give it to you. And we'll see in chapter 12, that is exactly what happens. No hostility, no anger. Yes, we'll give it to you. And in that way, it says in chapter 12, Israel plundered the Egyptians as if they were at war with them and they gained all the spoil of the war. So they're they're not stupid. They see why they should do this, but what caused them to do that? 
This was God's activity, wasn't it? It was God's activity. They're not begrudging the act. They want to do it. How compelling is that? I mean, you look even further in verse 3. It says, furthermore, watch this. The man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Now, can I just pause here for a moment? Who's writing this? That'd be hard to write about yourself, wouldn't it? Well, for some of you, you're like, no, I believe that about myself. You think, did God like force Moses to write this down? He really didn't want to. Let me brag on myself a little bit. Let me show you what great deeds I have done to accomplish this thing. You ever had that kind of swell up in your heart for even one second where you, you've been praying for something and you see God work in it and you want to make sure that everybody knows that you're the one that did it? You were involved in that. I, I don't know builders who brag on conduit. No, builders get the credit. And God's the builder and Moses is just a piece of conduit. That's it. He's not power. And by the way, when Moses writes this down, he's not bragging on himself. He's not talking about how great he is. He's saying, isn't this amazing what God did? Because when he walked into Egypt, he was a turncoat. When he walked into Egypt, he was a failed son of Pharaoh. He was a man who had murdered an Egyptian and who the Egyptians sought his life out. When he walked back into Egypt, this was not a man who was esteemed. As he walks out of Egypt, all the Egyptians now revere him. Not because of what he did. What did Moses do through this whole thing? He spoke to Pharaoh and lifted his hand up with a staff in it. That's it. Moses didn't make darkness. He didn't bring in locusts. He didn't cause wind to come in. Moses stood there and lifted his staff up. God did everything else. And when God did that, what happened among the entire Egyptian population? They, they began to revere Moses. This is someone we're now seeing the people turn against their gods and see the power of Yahweh. Not that this is repentance. This is just recognition. There's a difference between those things. You think, well, maybe Moses, you know, had carefully orchestrated his social media strategy to become this popular. And he was on Instagram, you know, doing his staff thing. Nope. This was God's activity. God brought supernatural plagues and Moses was just a hammer in God's hands. He wasn't a builder. Just like God to do something like that, isn't it? God had promised this earlier before Moses had even gone to Egypt. In, back in chapter 3, verse 21, God said, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. So he promised him that long, long ago. And that's exactly how it comes about in chapter 12. And we need to see this. The Egyptians were not in a place where they were begrudging as they thought about Moses. They acted freely. Their minds were changed. Their hearts were affected. 
they weren't following Yahweh, but their mind had been changed about Moses and the plagues did it. And who was doing the, that work through the plagues? God was doing that. God affected their hearts so that they did exactly what he said they would do willingly, not against their will. God is so directing the circumstances that the Egyptians of their own will do precisely what God promised to his people. God doesn't have to force people unwillingly. He works in so many ways, thousands of ways we can't even imagine everything that's happening in life to massage the human heart so that that heart does willingly what God designs. This isn't the only place in the Bible I was thinking through just in my own personal reading of the scripture. I just finished up recently the books of First and Second Chronicles, you know, those barn burners of spiritual truth, the ones you're like trying to fly through in your daily Bible reading. You know what I think you should do in First and Second Chronicles? Every time you see the narrator, every time you see the author tell you what God was doing behind the scenes, underline it. Let me give you a little taste. Because this is how God works. Second Chronicles is like the last book ever written in the, the Old Testament. It's right before that time between the Testaments and the, the launching of the Messianic era is Second Chronicles. And it was written, these books were written to remind Israel of their history, but not just of their history like First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings reminds Israel of their history when they did poorly, when they disobeyed God. First and Second Chronicles is a reminder of what God did in their history to give them hope as they go back to the land after the exile. And so in First and Second Chronicles, you'll see many times the writer, the author's telling you what God is doing so you will know God has been working behind the scenes the whole time. How does he do it? Second Chronicles 36, the very end of the book, it's really fascinating, right before Ezra, it's this interesting statement, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He's talking about Israel before they, they went into exile, or Judah particularly. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. And therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. This is interesting. Now back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God said he would do this. The Pentateuch. Hundreds of years before this. It says in verse 17 of 2 Chronicles 36, he, God, brought up against them, Judah, the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He, God, gave them all into his, the king of Chaldea's, hand. Now think on what that means for a minute. Did the king of Chaldea say, ah, God has given me a revelation. God has sent me word. I should go down to Israel and I should wipe them out. No, he's, he's trying to conquer the world. He doesn't know that behind the scenes, God is bringing about what he predicted to Israel and promised Israel. If they abandoned the word of God, God would bring in a foreign land and a foreign king and drive them out of the land. 
Now it's happening. And the king of Chaldeas, he's just thinking, I'm doing what kings do. I'm defeating other people. But he's actually accomplishing the will of God, isn't he? Judgment is falling and God is moving in the heart of a pagan king. Look at verse 22 of 2 Chronicles 36, because this is fascinating. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, years later, after the exile, the word of the Lord, to, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God be with him and let him go up. Wait a minute. Who did this? Cyrus, king of Persia. He's not a king in Israel. He's not following the law of God. He's not sensitive to the law of God necessarily. He's a king. He's a ruler. All he's doing here, he's saying, look, we know that all these lands that we've conquered, they've got their own God. And if we would just appease that God of that land, he'll bring blessing to my kingdom. That's what he's doing. Why did he do it? God stirred his heart to do it. Now, if you keep reading, the next book, if you turn the page, is the book of Ezra. And it says in the first verse, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a... You, you heard that before? Right, it's the end of Second Chronicles. And he used men like Ezra and others who were speaking into his ear, and the king of Persia makes a decision because God's working. Both for unfavorable judgment, for favorable blessing, God is at work in ways we cannot see or fathom. Through everything that you think, oh, I'm so glad this happened. Is God at work? Yes. And why is that happening? Is God at work? Yes. Yes. He's in the business of directing all things to accomplish his purposes. Personal responses from people. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. It's like streams of water and he turns it wherever he wishes, says the Proverbs. But what's even more fascinating is not just how God is directing personal responses. There's a second category emphasized here. Back in Exodus. God doesn't just direct personal responses. God directs effects. This is amazing to me. All right, so God, God deals with a person's heart. How in the world could God then direct all of the possible outcomes, all of the possible effects of choices? I mean, one choice could have a thousand different little tributaries of effect and they do and God is directing the effects also that's verses 4 to 10 back in Exodus 11 
Notice how this unfolds in a number of ways through these verses. First, I want you to see God directs who will be judged. God directs who will be judged. Verses four to five, Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I'm going out into the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. As well. Not, not everybody. This isn't judgment on every Egyptian. This is judgment that falls and death comes to the firstborn. Now we know Moses is speaking publicly here because in verse 8 he's going to leave. So this is, again, just after the plague of darkness. And the Lord tells him, about midnight I'm going to come. Now, you don't need to think of midnight like the, the, the clock hands on your watch, your clocks. No, midnight just means in the middle of the night. Because the day actually ended for most ancient people, the day ended when the sun went down. So midnight simply means in the middle of the night when you're most vulnerable and you're, you're asleep and everybody else is asleep and nobody's really doing anything because you can't do any work in the middle of the night. That's when I'm coming. And did you notice? God said, I am coming. I am going out into the midst of Egypt. Moses is not going to raise his staff. It's midnight. Moses is going to be asleep. He's going to be in his house. I'm going into the midst of Egypt. I'm going right into their midst. Now, this is a really loaded statement biblically because when God is in your midst, you have to be holy. When God is in the midst of his people, it's because they're holy. If God is in your midst and you're unholy, judgment comes. And that's what's happening here. And notice who, who's in the crosshairs. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Now, why? Why the firstborn? I mean, aren't the firstborn the better siblings anyway? I mean, that's how firstborn think, don't they? I'm one, I know. Why the firstborn? Well, this was actually promised earlier. Exodus 4.22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Who's God's firstborn? Israel is my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So why is God going after the firstborn? Because they've attacked God's firstborn. But what's so, what's so specific about the firstborn? Well, the firstborn was usually the one who received the inheritance from the father. It's the one that would lead the family. This is the one who would receive the, the direction of the family for the future, most societies were that way. The Egyptians understood that. I mean, the firstborn son of Pharaoh was the one who was going to be the next in line to be the next Egyptian god ruler. In Exodus 13:2, after the Exodus takes place, God will say, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. You're going to dedicate your firstborn who should be the head of your family, they're going to be dedicated to me. I own them, not you. They are my inheritors. So this is very special. 
So you, Pharaoh, have picked on my firstborn. I'm taking your firstborn. You're going to feel this. And everybody in the land is going to feel this. It's going to be very extensive. Verse 5, the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones and the firstborn of the cattle. Remember, they worshipped cattle. And it would be the first of the cattle that would be offered up to the gods. You're not even going to have anything to appease your so-called gods with in your offerings anymore. I'm going to take it. By the way, we're going to learn, we'll see this, this includes the Israelites, doesn't it? If the Israelites don't put blood on their doorposts, their firstborn will get it too. Everybody's sinful. And you're going to have to choose whether or not you're going to follow Yahweh or you're going to ignore what he says. And there will be consequences. And your firstborn, he's going to target them. And you know in advance, this would be an opportunity for Israel to wake up to think God is on the move. Will we follow him? Will we not? And notice, God is, he's just specific here. God's, God's judgment's not going to be random. It never is. Never think that the judgment of God is ever random. When God brings it, whether in what appears to be something like a natural disaster, personal tragedy, a national event of some kind. There is nothing random. There's nothing mindless about what God does. Now, I'm not saying that every disaster or tragedy is some specific judgmental hand of God. He could use it in so many different ways. He could be bringing some kind of temporal judgment to people. Those things are in the mind of God. He knows that. But what I do know is that there's no random effects of any actions or activities in the universe. As R.C. Sproul liked to say, there's not a random atom in the universe. And you have to believe that if you read this carefully. The firstborn are going to die. They're just going to die of what? They're just going to die. It's not like there's some specific disease that has spread, some kind of pestilence. They're going to just die. They're going to stop breathing in an instant. There's no random effects of any events in God's world. Judgment is purposeful. When it comes, it's strategic. Also, I want you to see that God directs who will be sorrowful. Who will be sorrowful? Verse 6. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt. What kind of great cry? Such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. How could you say that? In all of the history of Egypt, in all their thousands of years of existence, even up to this day, you can say, God, so emphatically, there's never been sorrow like this sorrow ever and never will be again in this land. You can only say that if you're the God who's involved in the details. This grief experienced in Egypt will be unlike any other grief. It's a great cry, it's said, a very purposeful effect 
In fact, the, the word used for great cry was used in Exodus 3, 7. And the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have given heed to their cry. That's, that's really significant. I heard my people crying. I heard them weeping. I heard them screaming out in agony and pain under your enslavement. Now there will be a great cry in Egypt, unlike anything. Chapter three, verse nine, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me and I've seen the oppression. We'll see it next time in chapter 12, verse 30. It happens just this way and there's the great cry. The effect of sorrow is even purposeful. Even who would be sorrowful and why? There was no initial sorrow over sin that led to any genuine repentance or eternal comfort here for the Egyptians. There wasn't any of that. But now there's going to be a sorrow of pain and grief. You can read about that similarly in Revelation chapter 6 when God starts pouring out final judgment people start crying for the mountains to fall on them because of the agony in Revelation 16 God will pour out bowls of judgment on the earth and they will literally gnaw their tongues in agony and blaspheme God for it they'll cry in agony God is pouring out judgment it is coming it is coming and it will be purposeful and directed. I want you to also see, thirdly, God directs who will be protected. Who will be protected? This is really interesting. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark. I could tell this didn't happen in my neighborhood. I got dogs that bark all day long and all night long. Matter of fact, they make my dog bark. I blame them. Dogs bark. That's what they do. Now, in the ancient world, typically dogs were not viewed positively. I mean, haven't we come a long way? Now there are pets. They weren't, they weren't viewed that way. They were scavengers, and they were left alone in the streets, and we, we've seen that when we've traveled to other places in the world. When we were in Istanbul and other parts of Turkey, we could, there's just dogs running around everywhere they just want you to feed them there's they're no they're not pets you don't touch them it's kind of how it was but also in Egypt there was the god Anubis who was the Egyptian god of the underworld who typically oversaw all of the embalming processes and guided the dead into the afterlife and he was pictured as a dog Dogs weren't left alone just because they weren't liked. They were connected to the underworld. As one commentator described, dogs growled at everyone, at everyone. So this was a special exception, setting Israel apart. Can you imagine this? Just in Goshen, all the dogs are eerily quiet. They're not barking at each other. They're not growling at you when you walk by. They're just silent. What kind of control is it that God has to even control the bark of a dog? This is God preserving his people. 
You can imagine as the people wail and cry out at night in their agony, the dogs begin to, ha- to howl all across Egypt except in Goshen. And it's just silent because there's no sorrow there. They're all protected. This is God's involvement. Even the effects of decisions God controls. Number four, God directs who will be humbled. Verse eight. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me saying, go out you and all the people who follow you and after that I'll go out. This is description to Moses. All these servants who stood around Pharaoh and they tried to mimic what Moses did, they're gonna bow in reverence in front of Moses as if he's greater than Pharaoh and they're gonna beg him to leave. All of the arrogant who think they're really something are gonna be humbled. This is gonna be a recognition of their defeat This is not belief, this is not repentance. It's a sign that Egypt will see themselves completely subdued. They have nothing left to do, no fight left in them, no resources remaining in them. They just have to give up. So they give up in front of Moses because it's the Lord who raises up and it's the Lord who brings down. 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. You know, we're, we're told in the New Testament letter of James chapter 4, verse 10, we're commanded, humble yourself. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. It's as if he's calling, come and just humble yourself. Don't put any pride in yourself or arrogance in your abilities. Just recognize who I am and see yourself under that and humble yourself and I'll exalt you. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, you younger men likewise. I wonder why I said it to younger men. Younger men are usually proud and arrogant and able, right? That's all the older men around. That's right. Those young guys. Be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. You want, you want God against you? Well, God directs who's going to be humbled. You want to maintain your pride, your arrogance? You want to be resilient against God? Friend, that's not wise. Humble yourself before he does it. Fifth, God directs who will be exalted. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied. Who's going to be exalted? God. God will. Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So that my miracles, my signs will flourish in a land that rejects me. People will always remember me when they think of Egypt. And by the way, go trace Egypt through the rest of the Old Testament and you'll see how many times the plagues are mentioned about God and his wonders and his exaltation over the greatest superpower of the ancient world. Why does he do this? 
This is what God does when he redeems his people. Remember, he's, he's redeeming his people here. I look to the end of the Bible and you go back into the, the book of Revelation, you get to the end of the book. God becomes all in all. The wicked are judged. The eternal city radiates with the glory of God. There's no sun, there's no moon, there's no night. It's just God and his glory. He and the lamb forever displayed. In fact, you go back to a book like Ephesians chapter one and you remember that wonderful verse in verse three of chapter one when it says, blessed be the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Well, what blessings? The father has elected you before time has begun. The son has shed his blood for your forgiveness and the spirit has sealed you completely. And three times in that passage, it says, why has the father, the son, and the spirit done these wonderful spiritual things for you in your salvation? To the praise of the glory of his grace. So that when you get to chapter two in Ephesians, you get to verse seven, it says, we're going to be put on display forever and marvel at the grace of God in our lives and our salvation for all eternity. This is what God does when he redeems his people is he determines who will be exalted and it is himself. The saints will see their salvation and their redemption and they will rejoice in God because of his wonders. That's what is really being rehearsed here. My wonders are going to be put on display. God will be exalted. When he saves, he is exalted. Look also at verse 10. God is going to direct who will be hardened. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. You do notice it did not say Pharaoh hardened his heart. Because again, as I said at the beginning, this is about what God is doing. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And as we've said over and over, it's like what he's described in Romans 1. He simply gives Pharaoh over to his own heart. He lets his own heart dominate him. Therefore, God hardened him. He hardened him. I think that is the picture when you look at the end when God comes in final judgment and the wicked of the world are under such duress. Why don't they repent? Why don't they stop and change and turn to God? But two times in Revelation 16 it says when they're under the bold judgments of God they would not repent because they're under the judgment of God and it's just and it's right because they refuse to listen. Now remember chapter 11 here it's just an introduction to what's about to happen in chapter 12. He's just introducing it. Why is he introducing it? Because Israel, church, are you listening? Who is directing all of life? Everything. Responses, effects. What conclusions do you think Israel should have drawn from hearing this? And then seeing how it unfolded. Do you think that his direction here suggested that they should be inactive? Oh, look what God's going to do. I think I'll just kick back and do nothing. 
No, I think you better put blood on the doorposts of your, your house. You better do what he said. It's coming. You obey, not because, you, 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 don't, you obey because God's in control. You don't, you don't get lazy because he's in control. God's intricate involvement should inspire in us trust. Look what God's in control of. Why, why are you not trusting him? As Jerry Bridges says in his book, Trusting God, it's not because God's not trustworthy. He's sovereign, he's wise, he's loving, he's fully trustworthy. It's because you won't let yourself trust him. Do you really think that some human being has a greater will than that of the eternal God and can manipulate God and his purposes and his will to do what some human being wants him to do? That's not God. Knowing what they know here, this should help Israel respond patiently even to the worst of the circumstances. What, what's coming when they go out of Egypt? Pharaoh's heart will be hardened and he's going to chase them. They're going to get pushed up to the Red Sea. Remember that? They're going to turn around and see the army of Pharaoh. And what are they going to do? Are they going to laugh and say, ooh, here it comes now. Watch what God does. Moses, what have you done to us? After 10 plagues? But, friends, he's provided for you, hasn't he? Over and over and over, despite what we have deserved, despite what we have earned, you and I are still sitting here alive and well when we shouldn't be. Don't you think we should trust him with the unknown and the adverse and the difficult because he is directing all of life? And never forget, because God directs everything, he does that for the redemption of his people. There's a reason he's directing. It's not just to show how strong he is. He's showing his strength so you can rejoice in his redemption. This is why the gift of God through Christ is freely given to you now. The appeal is to come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are now desperate, and you see God, and you see the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ, come, come. There is coming a day when that opportunity is turned off and judgment comes. You say, well, I, I don't know, can I come? Am I free to come? If you hear him call, you come. And if you didn't hear him call today, it's because you're not listening. He will save you if you will call to him to save you. If you will turn from your sin, he will save you. And the reality is he's been working out every detail in your life up to this very moment so that you would be sitting right here hearing this so that you would turn and you would follow. That's how intimately he's involved in the details of our life. Let's pray.